Philip Soriano. My voice is probably new to you. Uh, I am the head of customer here at Yaguara, where I oversee how we work together with brands and help them leverage their data to their fullest potential. Today, we have a great guest, uh, in my opinion, at least, Taylor Holiday, the co-founder and CEO of Common Thread Collective. Uh, in particular, what I like about him is his very original thought around direct-to-consumer and metrics in particular. He's got a cash multiplier formula that's honestly one of the most innovative things I've seen from a data perspective uh, that takes cash into perspective rather than LTV of a customer. Not to get too nerdy, but um, I hope you enjoy this episode. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Good Company. Uh, Johnny and I are too excited to bring on um, quite the major player in the e-commerce and marketing marketing space. Um, I'll let him introduce himself, but uh, thanks for joining us, Taylor. Yeah, pleasure to be here. I, I don't know that I have an intro to, to back that up, but um, yeah, my, my day-to-day job is the managing partner for Common Thread Collective. We're an e-commerce growth agency that focuses um, on helping e-commerce brands uh, between zero and 30 million grow and hopefully grow profitably. And so that's sort of our day-to-day job, but we're part of a bigger ecosystem called Dream Labs that includes 4x400, where we acquire and operate our own brands as well, and Admission, which is our community group of early stage entrepreneurs, uh, usually in the zero to a million dollar range, who are sort of going through a coaching um, and content sharing platform to sort of go through the early stages. So we get to see a lot of stuff in this very narrow niche of the world. So I like to say our, our knowledge isn't very wide, but it's pretty deep. Absolutely. Well, that's where you are today. Do you mind sharing the uh, the journey to get to that point? You've got a lot going on now. Yeah, I think I think it's the one thing I'll say is that like we have done a good job of every, and I say we, I mean me and my partners that I've been working with for a long time um, have everything we've done is compounded on something we've previously done. So we haven't really deviated much from who we've been from the start. And we got lucky about 10, 10 years ago to start a consumer product company that um, is where we sort of cut our teeth on learning e-commerce, um, learning how to grow a brand, understanding marketing. Um, and then from there have just sort of continued to replicate that process uh, leading up to the agency. So we've been on the brand side for most of our lives, um, started the agency about five years ago, uh, really as a vehicle that was ultimately about getting back to the brand side. We thought of the agency as a sort of information and talent acquisition engine, more so than a big business. We always had this dream of starting brands again. Um, so we brought that to life in the form of 4x400, and we still get to do that on a day-to-day basis. But the agency really grew way more than we ever anticipated. And so now um, that has really become uh, the center point of our ecosystem. All of it centered around this idea of helping entrepreneurs achieve their dreams We've reaped the immense benefit of having our lives transformed by entrepreneurship and now want to try and give that gift away to as many people as possible. So that's a, that's the very brief version of a long, long journey. Absolutely. Um, what is, uh, what's the team at now across all of those? Uh, yeah, so at CTC, we're about 90 people and then four by 400, there's about 20. Now the, the, so that number's tough because we have a whole production facility in Havelock, North Carolina, that there's probably another 15 or so people in there that do for Bamboo Earth. So we have um, a bunch of different uh, sort of subsidiaries within the thing, but the core entity where I spend most of my time, CTC is about 90 people now. That's awesome. I mean, speaking of that, Taylor, interested from your perspective, obviously uh, working across a bunch of different businesses, how do you think about just for other entrepreneurs out there that are maybe working on multiple things at one time, or just uh, trying to have some work-life balance? You were just talking about your your kids yeah. uh, coming home from school. How do you think about approaching, you know, not just with one business but multiple businesses, and then you know trying to be a father uh, among all those other things? How do you think about having that work-life balance? Yeah, so this is such a good question. So there's a quote that I love. Um, that says that inner peace is when your calendar aligns with your values. And so the key is you have to construct it in order of priority, right? So like every so often I go through an exercise of wiping my calendar blank. Okay. And this is one of the values, like the opportunities of being an entrepreneur is you get to play this game, right? So you wipe your calendar blank and then I build my calendar from the ground up in the order of the things that are most important to me. So Going onto my calendar first are my wife and children. So the immovable objects begin in the thing. So, so that what that means is that I never miss them. It may mean I'll miss something else, but I don't miss them. 
And then from there, the next thing that goes on is actually my personal care. So I work out every morning with a group of guys. Um, there's other spaces that I create that are about my well-being because, again, I can't serve anybody if I'm um, not in a good place myself. And then from there, I build through the highest priorities in my company, spending time with my leaders, highest value clients, like and whatever's left over gets sort of this flexible space. And that means it comes at the cost of something. It just doesn't come at the cost of things that are most important to me. And that has been a really important ritual for me to help solve that problem. And then the other thing is I don't lead all these companies. Like I'm surrounded by an amazing group of partners and leaders that like I can depend on to amplify things beyond what I could do myself. And that has, that's like the biggest unlock for me in growing a business. And many people in the agency world, you begin as sort of the solo entrepreneur, freelancer, whatever it is, and then you're growing. And we're so hardwired to think about our capacity to generate value being dependent on our own behavior and the biggest thing I've learned over the years is that like my, the actual way that I create sort of exponential increase in value is by bringing together and amplifying the gifts of other people not trying to do it myself. And that those are sort of just some of the things I've learned along the way. That's awesome. Well, I, I mean, thinking of that, it talked a lot about, I think, some of the things that probably touch on you being a, a good and successful, you know, both entrepreneur, person, husband, um, you know, partner. Yeah. Uh, obviously the meat of what we talk about usually on this podcast is what, you know, what makes a good company. So I think super interesting here to hear your thoughts on this, not only as someone who, you know, is working with, with a ton of different e-commerce companies that scale through a common thread, but then obviously, you know, working internally, you know, on those brands itself. So really curious to start off our first bucket is always strategy. So, you know, whether it's the internal brands that you work with, obviously, you know, the best brands that you work with, with common thread, what's, what's kind of like the, uh, I guess, come back to your name. What's the common thread that you see in between all those different brands when it comes to strategy? So, so this question, right? So strategy is a process of building a plan to accomplish an objective. Like that's what, as I was reading through, when you guys sent that over, I was thinking, okay, like what is a strategy? And I come from a sports background, right? So I played professional baseball in another life. And so we would call it the game plan or the scouting report or whatever it is, which is like, if the objective is winning, what is the mechanism by which we're going to accomplish that goal, right? So the key there for me is strategy is irrelevant without a clear objective. And the biggest thing that I have found for my own businesses is that unless I am clear on why I exist and what I'm attempting to do, like strategy is irrelevant. Strategy is just chasing my tail in a circle against some other indication that I've accepted as the reason I exist. And as entrepreneurs, it's so easy to pick up an external signal. So people love to talk about revenue or number of employees or profitability or whether I'm on the Inc. 500 list. There's all these guideposts that you can grab as an entrepreneur as a definition of your success or failure. Um, and in the absence of a clear intentional choice, you'll grab different ones all the time and you'll be blown about and constantly feeling like you're failing or succeeding. So to get to your strategy question, um, I think it begins with what is the mission of the company? Why does your company exist? What is the point? Um, and then have you created a clear objective way in which you measure whether or not you're accomplishing that? And like, and to really challenge at the truth of it, like, is this real for me? Like, do I actually give a shit? Pardon my language. I don't know if that's okay, but um, like, do I like? Is this a thing that I wrote down because one time somebody told me I'm supposed to have a mission statement, or am I actually clear on why this company exists? And that to me is the starting point of great strategy. Is like until you have that, you cannot develop a strategy to accomplish anything. Um, so that that for me is like, there was a moment in. And sorry, I know I'm talking a lot, but um, about two and a half years into the agency, it was the end of our year. And we had just had a, like a really successful year by a lot of different metrics. Great a revenue growth, our most power, profitable year by percentage. We'd just been named one of the best companies to work for and uh, from Glassdoor and like all these signals that I could look at. But it was, it was a, I remember it very clearly. It was late one evening in our office around five o'clock. It was in December. And I was reflecting on our mission statement. So our mission statement at Common Thread Collective is to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. And I walked around and I asked every person in the company, like, hey, how many dreams do you think we achieved this year? I went in one room and somebody said four. I went in another room and somebody said 500. And somebody, and I went, in, and what became abundantly clear to me is that nobody actually had any idea. And everyone, it meant something different to everybody. 
And so there was no cohesive sense of do, have we succeeded or failed as a group because it was really unclear what that actually meant. Um, and that for me was like, man, like, why do I exist? Because part of the thing about an agency business, right, is that there are better financial vehicles. Like, I'll just be candid. In terms of business models that you're, if you want to make a billion dollars, like an agency is probably not the right way to go right? Like it's just not there. The amount of agencies that sell for a billion dollars, right? Like not very many of them. So if that's the point, like I could do better things with my time, right? Like I, like I could probably allocate the resource differently. And so again, it's like, what's a good strategy? Well, it depends on the thing I'm trying to do. And for, so for us getting clear on that and really calling into account and asking ourselves, do we actually care about this thing? Or does it just sound good in a sentence? And what the hell does it even mean? And how do you measure it? We're all really important parts. Yeah, I love that. So I'm curious, I mean, again, so you, you talked a little bit about like internal strategy and how that aligns. I'm really curious, like as, as, an, as a partner for an awful lot of these brands, you know, for, for you all to be really effective at what you do, I, I'm assuming that then it's, it, and for you all to come up with really great strategies and execute against those from a marketing perspective, what have you seen, you know, be common across uh, the best brands that you work with in terms of how they communicate, you know, their mission to you all in order to empower you all to be best uh, at, at what you do on your side. Yeah, that's great. So I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example of when this plays out really, really well. Okay. Um, so we work with a client called Road ID. Okay. They've been around the family run business. They've been around 20 plus years. Okay. And they have a mission statement that is they want to make wearing a Road ID as common as a seatbelt. Okay. That's, that's their mission statement. And every year they set a goal for the number of people that they want to wear a road ID. So they take this idea of as common as a seatbelt, they then chunk it down into an annual goal of number of new people who are now wearing our product as your partner. I can develop a strategy to help you accomplish that. Like we can get really clear now together. And when we have a conversation that is like, Hey, we may have to sacrifice some profitability, but we can get more customers in the name of that. Do you want to make that choice? There's now a governing principle that answers that question, right? And that to me is the kind, when we can be really accessible as a partner is when you're really clear on what it is that you want to accomplish as a business. What's hard is when there's infighting around like, is it profitability? Is it customer growth? Is it LTV? Are we trying to scale? Do we want to be acquired? Do we, like, are we trying to put money in our pocket? Like, we can't help you do a thing that's unclear, right? So when we have clients that are just super clear on this is where we're going and we have the process of helping them. So we've taken for us, the way that we help in this is we've taken this phrase, help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. And we've defined the terms a little. So we call a dream, a future reality you desire to create. We defined it a term. And then we say, okay, for our clients, we work in primarily 12 month agreements. So we say over the next 12 months, what is a future reality about your business that you would want to create? And we help, we define it, we call it their dream, they name it, we track it. And sometimes that's a revenue goal. Sometimes it's a new customer number. Sometimes it's freedom for themselves to be able to focus exclusively on the business, whatever it might be. But now together, in a, like when we do a QBR or when we check in on progress, we can always point back at that and go, how are we doing against the thing we stated that we exist to do together? And that is just makes the job so much easier because we're all clear on where we're going. Yeah, that shared understanding, I think. My first company being an agency, that shared understanding is incredibly important for any successful engagement, I think, particularly in, in the services industry. Um, so, I mean, I, you, you started touching on some things there. And, and obviously, I think you spend a lot of time on, on Twitter and various things like that, like breaking down data and metrics. So excited to get into this next bucket with you. You talked a little bit about you know, I think everything flows out of that objective. What are we, what are we looking to achieve? What's our mission? Right. Um, but, but really interested for you, like as, as a marketer, who again is seeing all of this at scale, interested on like, what's, what's your approach to data as a marketer? Is it obviously like the, the places where you're spending, where, you know, different businesses have audiences is constantly evolving. And so, you know, I guess kind of with the lens of what we just talked about in terms of defining an objective, you know, how does comment that thread think about, you know, approaching data and, and reporting uh, with his clients? Yeah. So there's a sort of philosophical approach to data, which I'll, I'll start with. I, I love the, 
the David Ogilvy quote, and I'm probably going to butcher it exactly, but it's something um, he says, like marketing executives, I have it here. It says marketing executives um, are coming to rely too much on research and they use it as a drunkard uses a lamp post for support rather than illumination. And so one of the things I think about data is that are you allowing the truth about what's there to develop insights in action, or are you crafting the data to serve a hypothesis that you've already decided is true, right? Um, and I think that's one of the really important things to try to challenge yourself on is, are you allowing the data to reveal truth to you and then make a decision, or are you attempting to create data that matches your pre-existing narrative? And we, it's really hard not to do the other one because we fall in love with our ideas. And you can really manipulate data to say a lot of different things to you. Um, so objectivity to what is the thing that I'm tracking and what am I allowing it to dictate about how we behave, um, I think is super, super important. So that's like a, a like sort of a philosophical viewpoint of data is like the data directing the insights that direct the strategy versus the strategy being backed by the data that I then go create. It's like the direction, which direction do you work in? Um and it's hard, especially early on, because what happens is you start a business and you have no data. So you only have hypothesis and you're then begin a process of actualizing your hypothesis and you're finding out if it's true. And we actually don't develop a rhythm of uh, reflecting to determine and allowing the newly curated data to inform whether we were right or not. And then to readjust, we just repeat the pattern of hypothesis, actualized data, hypothesis, actualized data. And we don't ever invert the process, which at some point in a business there, it has to begin to shift as you develop the available information. Um, so that's like sort of philosophical. Um, in terms of practical for our clients, so we really believe that more and more, especially the phase of business that we're dealing with, we work with primarily, again, early stage e-com companies um, that are not, many of our clients are venture backed. That's just tends to not be the clientele that we serve. Some are, some are bigger companies that have good capitalization. So for most of our clients, like cash flow. And the money that the business is able to generate is what they live off of. It's where new inventory comes from. So profit really matters. So we sort of begin through this lens of understanding where profit comes from. And we sort of have a methodology for thinking about financial accounting in e-com that we call four-quarter accounting that helps you assess where your revenue should be allocated against different categories that begins to form the sort of construct of how do you develop a profitable plan or business. And then from there, we think about, okay, of the revenue creation, where does e-commerce revenue come from? And we break that down into component parts. So you, you probably, if you follow me ever, you've heard us talk about the growth equation, visitors times conversion rate times LTV minus your variable costs equals contribution margin or profit. And so we then look at that as this governing hierarchy that allows you to enter into problem solving. So if I want to increase the output, like the, the thing about tracking revenue or even profit is it's a lagging indicator right? Like it's, it is the output of a bunch of inputs. And so we're, we're really interested in helping people think about the inputs and how they relate to each other. Um, and we think of like all forecasting or prediction or, 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 or uh, assessment of future outcomes as the interaction between inputs. And so our job as the agency is to identify those inputs and how they interact with each other and bring visibility into our ability to affect them. So if AOV is an input, uh, to an output of revenue, how can I affect AOV? If my CPC or cost per click on my ads is an input to that output of revenue, how can I reduce my CPC? Like, so they're all pieces of a story. And we've worked really hard to focus really narrowly in on e-com about what are the inputs that people should be tracking and paying attention to, and then building visibility, which I think is the next important part of data, is once you identify what you're looking for, you have to build systems to give you visibility to that data. And then from there, once you have data visibility, then you can create insights that create action. So that's like the sequence um, that, that we sort of go through is like, what is the, the, the data that you're looking for? How do you build ongoing automated, ideally, access to it? Once you have it, how do you then generate insights that inform a plan? And like that order of operations as it relates to data is really critical. Yeah, I love that. It, it's something we refer to here when we're onboarding customers as like the, the crawl, walk, run. I think when people go from kind of nothing to having any type of, you know, whether it's through a partner like you all or through a platform like us into having some type of data visi visibility, you you often want to go from kind of like not measuring or managing to a whole lot, maybe outside of something, you know, lagging like revenue to all of a sudden we want to, you know, have insight into everything that we can. 
Um, and so I think that that crawl, walk, run of having the right framework of thinking about things, how that ties back to our core objectives, and then being able to monitor that and understand leading indicators, those different levers we can pull is, is really, really important. Yeah, um, I think I think one of the underrated places, like so for e-com founders in particular, which I'm sure there's a lot of here, is that they would be so well served, and I know it served me well, to improve their basic understanding of economics, so specifically finance um, and stats, okay? So like, because one of the problems with data is that your utilization of it, it's like a carpenter is going to make much more use of a hammer than I can. I'm a horrible, I'm the least, you know, uh, least crafty, handsy person ever. Um, so it's not very useful to me, despite it being a great tool, right? So I think about your platform or some of the data things that we build is that one of the things that I often see, and this is very common, I'll give you a practical example. Uh, there's a very common problem in e-commerce is uh, like measures of central tendency. Okay. So when I say measures of central tendency, what I'm referring to are classic stats 101, mean, median, and mode, right? Which are the three measures of central tendency. Well, in e-com, we all use average order value. Like this, we love to reference averages um, and that's mean, right? So in terms of measures of central tendency, but here's the problem. Um, utilizing, there's a saying in stats that says like, there is no, when it comes to measures of central tendency, no one is best, but using one is certainly worst. Okay. And here's why. So I'll give you a very practical example. Uh, Kalo, okay. The Silicon Regan company that we started. Um, their average order value was $30. Okay. $30 as the average order value is not actually representative of any order that ever happens because what it is, is it's bimodal, right? You have two order sets. You have a ring that costs $20 and then you have people who buy two rings for $40, but you can't actually with the SKUs on the site, create an order worth $30. It doesn't even exist. So if you think about in a Facebook ad account, and this is a very common thing that I see happen. Okay. Uh, you're bidding and this is a little bit in the weeds on Facebook, but stay with me. Okay. You bid with a conversion objective called lowest cost. Okay. Where you're basically saying to Facebook, find me the lowest cost per acquisition you can against this customer set. And then we use something called cost caps, which is basically a way of creating a floor. So you tell Facebook, don't get, pay for any conversion that costs me more than X, right? Whatever you decide. And let's say my target is a two to one return on ad spend. So I want to put $1 in and get $2 back. And so what people do is they go look at their average order value and they say, okay, Facebook, my average order value is $30. Do not pay more than $15 for a conversion, right? And you build the inputs of a machine learning tool against an order type that actually never happens. And so what happens is you have Facebook targeting a $15 cost per acquisition against a $30 order, but there are no $30 orders to actually be found. There's only $20 orders, which would be a $10 CPA, or $40 orders, which would be a $20 CPA. Do you see how that breaks down? And so one of the first things we do with a lot of clients is we build them a histogram of order frequency. And we do it by buckets so we can see what are the actual modal orders? What's the most common order type for you? And then how do we think about the relationship between the mean and the mode and the median? And what does that say about how people buy your product? And so that's an example where data, just having the average, is actually wholly insufficient to being able to make the most of it to truly understand what's happening and create an effective strategy. I love it. That's awesome. I think there's there's so many things that we talk about with customers all the time in terms of how you think about defining things. Even you know even order value AOV in general can also often be a misnomer if that's on gross and you're not including discounts, you're not oh. or you're including shipping or taxes or any of those things. And so I think. You know, we could probably uh, rant on this ad nauseum, but I think having those definitions, uh, understanding like what what's the actual data behind it, and then you know what's the broader context of, of what that means to your decisions is is really important for how data uh, and kind of strategy come together to create something that's effective. Yeah, uh, and, and even just like another big one that I see is like the relationship between historical data and future data, right? Um, like we grew up, and I say we as in media buyers on Facebook, grew up with this behavior. And it's like, in reflection, it's really like the most insane behavior maybe that happens in the world, which is this idea that I as a media buyer go into business manager, okay? If you guys have seen it, this big dashboard full of tons of numbers that show past performance, 
Okay. So all it does is show me what happened historically as it relates to my ads. Okay. Then without so much as pulling out a calculator, we infer causal relationships about what that data means about what will happen in the future. And it is like one of the most unsophisticated, worst data-driven processes that happens in business. It's like this media buyer going, oh, my ROAS last week was 1.4 on this ad and 2.2 on this ad. So that means that next week, the 2.2 ad will be better. And that relationship is fundamentally false. It is just not real in the way that we think that it is. And this is why Facebook has worked so hard to introduce tools like CBO, campaign budget optimization, that remove that decision-making away from people trying to infer causal relationships about predictive metrics that don't exist. And understanding when something is actually predictive, when it actually has value to predict the future accurately, is another one of those statistical sort of uh, understandings that people usually don't reach or, or strive for. And so they begin to make all these inferences about what this data set means about what will happen in the future that are just frankly made up. They're just not real. All right. So on, on that point, and in last question here, uh, before we move on to kind of our last piece is, you know, in the growth formula, one of the things you have in there is LTV. And I think LTV is always, you know, when we think about LTV, it's, it's one of the things that, that put an awful lot of the venture-backed uh, consumer companies that haven't existed or that have, have died very quickly, you know, put them in a bad space is, is assumed LTV. So when you come in and you start working with the customer and you're defining, you know, kind of these metrics and, and you're helping them think through the growth formula, you know, how do you all think about LTV and think about that, you know, especially with companies who are just getting off the ground or are really looking to scale for the first time and are looking to, you know, acquire new customers? How do you make those uh, inferences? Yeah, it's a great question. Like, like the, the, the world is littered with companies that have died with what Andrew Chen, who's the former head of growth at Uber, calls the law of shitty cohorts, right? Which is this idea that all customers deteriorate in value over time. So your past, again, this is the relationship between past and future. You cannot look at like your mom, the cohort of one who's going to buy everything that ever you sell ever, who's, you know, LTV's infinity and go, well, my future cohorts are going to behave like that first cohort, right? Like, it's just not true. And that's, that's true over time too, is that it tends to be true, not always, but it tends to be true that your earliest adopters are your most loyal customers. Um, and so that they, the, your actual LTV by cohort actually deteriorates over time. It doesn't get better. Like we would like to assume that it does. Um, and so that is a really high risk, especially when you're dealing with small sample sizes. So one of the things that there's a phrase that we've coined in the e-commerce world, we call it the cash multiplier. And we just use that as proxy for your 60 day LTV. What we want to do is we want to look at short term windows. And the reason we think that short term windows, like the problem with LTV as a, as a, phrase is it's subjective in length, right? So if you say LTV in your business is around five years and I say LTV in my business has been around six months, we're fundamentally referencing a different thing in a different measure, right? So that makes it hard to compare. It makes it hard to understand what's good. So you have to look at time constrained windows and understand sort of the, the things that get created in that window. And then the second thing is for businesses that are light on cash, right? that are in longer cash conversion cycles in the early days because you have poor terms with your manufacturer or whatever it might be, you cannot wait a really long time to realize the value of your sale. So 60 days is a really tight window. It allows you to look out um, and make a decision. Now, we would still encourage in most cases that you are still looking for first order profitability. That I, we, we think it is a very dangerous game to push the value capture into that latent of a window. Even, even if you have the cash flow to support that decision-making, Unless you're a subscription business, I think that there is a high risk that your early cohorts, especially when they're small sample sizes, are going to vary wildly. And that's because cohort value has lots of different contributing factors. So I'll give you an example. We just released a study where we compared the value, the 60-day value of customers by uh, three different time periods. We looked at year-round compared to Black Friday, Cyber Monday compared to gifting window, which we call December 1st through last day to ship, December 18th. And we compared the, the, the value of those three sets of customers because the theory was gifting is about buying for somebody else. So the LTV of that customer, we hypothesized, would be lower than somebody buying for themselves, right? And then Black Friday, Cyber Monday tend to be discount purchasers, which also brings it in a different type of persona. So when we compared those three cohorts, what you see is Yep, Black Friday, Cyber Monday customers have the lowest LTV 
gifting has the second, and then the rest of the year is, is the highest. And so what you see from that um, is that if I were to take my 60-day LTV number or my LTV number and use it to sort of define my cohort value for Black Friday, Cyber Monday promotion and ad spend, well, whoops, when it comes back and it's 30% lower and everything's gone, right? So you have to be really careful to understand the attributes that are creating the behavior. Again, be careful assuming causality, right? Um, so the shorter the window that you can measure, the more profitable you can be the earlier, the less you run the risk of these things being a factor. Love it. We'll, we'll dive into some more of those things that you just hit on in a little bit. Um, but just kind of to wrap up our main section here, would love to hear again, you know, I think it's always interesting to talk with, with folks who work across multiple companies, you know, both both for all the, the companies that you work across as an operator and then all of the companies that you work with, you know, externally as, as a vendor and as a partner, um, you know, would love to hear like what, what makes a great culture? You know, I think having run an agency, you know, retaining talent is always a hard thing, uh, you know, in a service business. How, how do you think about building culture internally that's aligned to all of these things? Um, and then what have you seen again across all of the, the different clients that you've worked with of what, what makes a great culture? Yeah, so I love this question. I think it's it's something I've thought a ton about because it's something we care a ton about at CTC. Um, and I my what I ascribe to, I, I think the best book I've read on culture in a long, long time is um, What You Do Is Who You Are by Ben Horowitz. And the point that he makes is that your culture is the behaviors that happen when you are not in the room. It is, and like that culture is fundamentally about behavior. It's not an ideological ascent. It is what do people actually do inside of your company? So if you say you have a value of honesty, the question is, are people behaving honestly? Because your culture is actually the behavior. It's not the stated value, right? So what that means then is not that you don't have stated values. We do. We have very defined values, but you are constantly identifying, teaching, and reinforcing the behaviors that exemplify those values. So I'll give you two ways that this sort of comes to life. So for every role inside of our company, um, we have a job description, and then we also have what's called a good bad doc. Okay, it's based off of Ben Horowitz wrote a, a document called Good Product Manager, Bad Product Manager. That was sort of a legendary sort of definition of that role for his software companies. And we've taken it and we've modified it for every role inside of our company. So good media buyer, bad media buyer. And we literally say good media buyers do this, bad media buyers do this. Good media buyers do this, bad media buyers do this. And we go through it through the lens of each of our values, right? So we have a, a value that is candor with kindness, right? It's this idea that um, we're going to give each other direct feedback um, and we're going to do it with kindness. And so one of the ways that plays out is in our monthly reviews with your manager, there's a section in there called the managing up moment, which is where you give your manager feedback. So in a good bad doc, to reinforce that value, what we would say is, Good media buyers take time to fill out the managing up moment in their Asana forward progress. Like we'll literally define the specific behavior associated with the value that we want to become part of the culture, right? And so then you think about that. And then when we hire, we have objective measures related to each value. We assess for the things that we're looking for. We train on the behaviors that we want. And then every Friday in our all company meeting, we have a process called commendations where Everybody, we go through each of the values, break foam walls, which is our sort of way of saying when you encounter a problem, do you push on it and try and figure out a way to solve it? And everybody gets the chance to go around and call out somebody in the company for exemplifying that behavior. Hey, this week, I just want to call out Ricky for the break foam walls chip. We give out little chips. Um, and here's what he did that exemplified that behavior. Hey, start palms down is one of our phrases. That's about being servant first. We are here to serve our clients Hey, I just want to talk about how, you know, Crystal this week exemplified starting palms down. So every Friday, we are signaling to everybody, these are the behaviors that are consistent with who we want to be, right? And so over, so not only have we defined the values, we've defined the culture, we've made it understandable to people. We then are able to point to this is what that means, right? Because a lot of times what happens is you have things like honesty and integrity, but it's like you don't ever break that down to... When you fill out your expense reports, you include receipts and they're to the penny accurate for what they are. Like that's honesty inside of the organization, right? So that I think is really for me, what makes good culture is that it's actually accessible and I understand how to behave within it, 
because it's been defined and clear for me relative to the behaviors, not just the ideas. I love it. Um, well, I think that I, I think that's really helpful. I think some good thoughts in there, some things that I made some notes on uh, that I think would be cool things for us to implement even in, internally. So really appreciate all the thoughts there. Uh, JD, I think we're, we're time to move back into your realm and, and move a little bit out of uh, being so seriousness into uh, having a little bit of fun here. So want to talk to the little activity we're going to we're going to go through today. Yeah, absolutely. We are exiting the masterclass on uh, on data <laughs> or data inefficiency masterclass. Um, all right. So, Taylor, we uh, as the, the brand whisperer here, I want to uh, I want to pick your brain here about, um, you know, a, a different type of uh, brand here. So, you know, like a living, breathing one's great. You're, you're working with teams and, and founders and a physical product that's out there gaining traction. Um, I want to hear about is there a brand that you would either like to launch or bring back from the grave that you think if you just got your hands on it, it would be the next, the, the, the Peloton of 2021. Um, so, yeah, talk to me about the super, super yeah, low bar. unreal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Something that you did there that I think is actually important, which is like what Peloton is, is it's the marriage of the digital and the physical, right? Like, so they understand that those things are like, they're becoming so much closer and intimately tied. So I think it's critical. So um, I, like I was, I have a friend who just recently threw to me like the ultimate, like uh, just uh, bait for me to get super excited about an opportunity. So there's, and I, I think I'm allowed to talk about this, but oh, well, he didn't tell me not to. So um, there's a, there's a company that I grew up with. So I'm a huge sports fan. I'm also super into collectibles and nostalgia and Americana culture, like those sorts of things. So like, uh, we've been working with Igloo coolers forever and like bringing that brand back to life has been so much fun because there's just so much history, so much to work with in the terms of story. Like Igloo coolers were present in the garage when like Apple was being created. Like there's just so much there. And I love that. Right. So there's a brand um, called starting line. Okay. And if you grew up as a sports fan, you probably got these little action figures and they were super cheesy. Um, but they were like in the, like there was, you were saying uh, Johnny that there's like, you had a dream team one. Um, I had like Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire, all these little baseball action figures um, that as a kid, I loved playing with. Um, and then it disappeared. Like it just, it, it, it fell off the map for whatever, whatever reason. And um, so that would be the brand that I would love to restore. And so my friend has this opportunity where the trademark laps, somebody bought it. And now there's a toy company that's looking to produce it. And the idea of creating action figures that somehow then are related to online digital assets and content, I think it would be just so fun. And the ability to trade. Um, and if, like one of the things I'm fascinated by in, in, our, in the world is like how much money gets spent in app on digital nothingness, right? Like on upgrades for your character and all these things. Um, so to me, there's this whole world in which like there's a relationship between your physical character and some sort of digital representation of them and the, the way that they interact in like and the other game like that I would like to like somehow tie this all together with. Did you guys ever play backyard sports on the computer? Like backyard baseball? Oh, yeah. So oh, I just read a huge article by the ringer on them. Okay. So, like, it's great. <laughs> there's gotta be some relationship where my Pablo Sanchez little character in starting line ties to like how souped up my character is online and like, like there's just something there that's a massive unlock. If you think about what's happening with trading cards, which you guys can't see, but there's a, my whole table. I'm super into trading cards and Pokemon and like all these things. There's something about this marriage of I have a physical object that I can also engage in an online community that I think is super compelling. Yeah, I think um, I was immediately thinking of like, you know, sort of the Pokemon example there is, you know, back in the day, you would you basically show up to wherever your arena was, whether it was your backyard or library stuff, and you would have your like, your set, and you'd be like, this is what I've got. You're kind of showing off, but it's sort of like you can look but not touch vibe. Right. <laughs> and, um, and I think uh, doing that in some digital form has to be possible because it's uh, that's I mean, that's you, you were kind of like alluding to like the Fortnite examples and things like that. Yeah. Like yeah. people are showing showing up and kind of like I'm here and they, they know everyone knows who it is and kind of what they're about. And, and having that in some sort of like type of like tradable, like asset form is, I don't know. I think, I think you got, there's something there. Yeah. It, it, there's just so much opportunity like in um, 
when you when you think about people as distribution and brands and support. So if you think about like influencer brands, like sunglasses brands that use influencers to generate, um, you know, value for a sunglass brand. Like we worked with a company called Diff Eyewear forever that built a giant business doing exactly that. It's like, here's Khloe Kardashian's signature, you know, sunglasses. Well, the thing about something like action figures or caricatures, and I think this could spill over into the business world. Like, like there should absolutely be Elon Musk action figures and everything like you, you are like built into the distribution of that is that idea, right? Like is the the influencer that you're leveraging as part of the physical good um, that there's an incentive and built in power there. It's just like, there's so much that I think builds access to immediate audience for things um, in ways that will help you clearly define the target audience when doing things like paid or digital or stuff like that. That's just so much clearer than I have a skincare product, you know? Um, and I think one of the things we always look for is like, is the audience for this product easily digitally identifiable? Like, do they aggregate in groups that I can access that are very clear and obvious? Um, so when there's products that do that, I think there's just so much opportunity um, to access them in, in cost-effective ways. All right, Taylor. So what would be little crossover here, starting lineup, you're making figures. What's your like dream uh, figure to have if you bring that brand back? man that's a great question so like i my like i'm an all-time hero kobe bryant like this has been like cried the day he died was at the game when we celebrated the first day after his death like so some way in which like there would just be some some way to honor him in that in in a cool fashion would be super cool even if it was like you partnered to amplify women's basketball as a mechanism through these things in partnership with that you could get, you know, Vanessa or people behind in a way that was like not monetizable at all, but just was a chance to sort of give my kids and a bunch of other kids an additional way to remember somebody that was like so impactful to me would just be like such a fun dream project. Um, so that would be the starting point for me. I love it. You uh, showing my iPhone screen now it's been on there since a day. Uh, so, so 2020 started off rough and, and only continues on that way. Uh, the, the brand that I was thinking about, and they're still like kind of alive, but I also have a lot of nostalgia for, and I think a lot of people do that are our age, is, is especially if you play basketball, it's and one. Like they yeah. still exist. <laughs> but I was talking to someone like two weeks ago about and one mixtapes. I'm on their site now. They still sell like maybe not the best shoes as a Nike person. Are they on um, Shopify, Johnny? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, but I just think about like how, like what a like community was built by and one mixtapes. I remember like waiting outside of Foot Locker, waiting for the like latest mixtape to drop. And then of course, like your one friend would go and get it. And then you burn it on to a bunch of other like DVDs and sell the pirated versions to all your friends. Uh, another great like 90s, 2000s, uh, like very nostalgic brand. Yeah. So it's so funny. Okay. So we work with this client called Breaking Tees. Okay. And I've just absolutely love their business. So they have built basically a social listening tool that aggregates data from Twitter and that's in sports in specific trend categories that they look for. And they've assigned a predictive value to different conversations about their ability to sell t-shirts. And then it sends a signal to their design team and they create designs around a concept or trend and release them instantaneously and sell a grip of them. And they just smash. I love these guys. They're super smart. It's so fun. Um, and so if you think about like, and one, like one of the things that I think the NBA has done really well relative to the NBA is like the distribution of their content rights, right? Like, and if you think about Instagram, the second that a dunk happens, there's like five the highlights. Um, yeah, yeah. Right. The house of highlights world. So to me, there's this like, and one product thing that is like some variation of that, that like if it, and one was all about that, the moment, the trick shot, the guy got crossed up, the guy, whatever. And it's like, how could they or like sort of curate around the world, some interaction with this on an ongoing basis in a way that's like, like they should have been the house of highlights, right? Like that, that's where they should have lived is in something like that. Um, but that sort of real time movement into like, rather than and one trying to make a pair of shoes to compete with Nike, I think that their story is like, they are the people of the moment of the thing that happened. Like that was like the and one story, right? It was like, um, and they went out and created those moments, like in these stories and documentaries and tapes, 
But the reality is they're happening everywhere all the time and there's cameras everywhere all the time. So what would it look like for them to sort of have a version of that? You know, like, so that's a perfect example of something that how do you bring that into a modern interaction would be super fun to figure out. Love it. Uh, All right. So I think we have one last thing before we wrap. I know we're getting to the end of our time, but uh, you know, especially we're talking kind of right at the end of October. Um, I think we've touched on a lot of these things, but as we're kind of coming into Q4, uh, we touched on a lot of these things. How do we think about, you know, customers gifting? How do we think about customers buying at discounts? Um, And so I think like we can keep this pretty generic. I know we need to wrap up in the next 10 minutes or so, but you know, what, what advice, what, you know, what things should e-commerce companies be thinking through as we approach uh, the holiday season? Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a big question, right? I think um, the way I tend to think about this, right, because I'm trying to, I'm trying to give an answer that's as broadly applicable as possible, because to say you should advertise on Snapchat for the three weeks, like it's just, it's not, it's too specific. So the way I would think about this is if you can identify the inputs that you believe are going to most immediately affect your outcome in Q4, okay? Your Facebook ROAS, how much money you're able to spend, the CPM of the platform, um, you know, like what your discount is, the AOV, all of the inputs that go into generating the outcome and understand how they interact with each other and come up with scenarios to imagine um, possible outcomes, you can begin to see the levers that will have the biggest impact. Okay. And you'll begin to identify the ones that are within your control and the ones that are not. So one thing I think people spend a ton of time, like wasting time on is like talking about Facebook CPMs. Um, And we have to do it because our clients worry about it incessantly and we have to contextualize it for people, but it's completely outside of your control. So the narrative of planning for that and worrying about where they're at is a giant energy of emotion and mental energy suck that you should not worry about. Instead, what you should do is plan for scenarios relative to where what happens as you go and be able to move accordingly. So the more agility you have rather relative to the outcome versus the more singular your bet is, the more likely you are to succeed. And so by reducing dependency on paid and building your email list ahead of time and finding better SEO results to drive up organic, you're going to reduce your dependency on that volatility. So if you can identify all those inputs, if I could get my AOV to here, or if I could get my direct traffic to here, or if I could get this many emails, or if I could, whatever it is, then now you can get down to a strategy to develop a Q4 plan. So we're literally doing this right now for our 2021 forecasting as an agency. It's like my job is to like say, okay, where are we going next year? That's a big giant question with lots of potential variable outcomes. Um, And one of the things we think about with forecasting is that my job is not to be right. It's to help us build a model that understands where we are importantly wrong. Okay, so I want to say this again. Forecasting is not about being right. It's understanding where you're importantly wrong. So as you build a model that anticipates outcomes by variable inputs, as you begin to actualize the holiday season, as November 1st comes around and you go, ooh, the Facebook CPMs are here. I planned for here. What does that mean? Like when you have the trellis of a plan that understands the inputs, as they come to life, you can begin to understand how those implications will change what is likely to happen. And you can adjust accordingly and you can make changes and things like that. So there are things that are really immovable. How much inventory you have. You can't probably turn that around really quick. So you've got to make one decision about that and go for it. But there are things, how many emails I send, how much money I'm spending that are more movable and understanding the things that would make you go up or down and how to watch for them is really the key to being successful. I love it. All right. So last last parting thought, give us, uh, would love to hear one prediction for uh, Q4 of this year. Uh, you know, obviously this has been a crazy year with, you know, I think e-commerce being accelerated in a, in a really meaningful way. Um, so yeah, I just would love to hear, uh, one, one thought, one hot take from you on, on something that we'll see, uh, you know, in this holiday season that we haven't seen in the past. Yeah. So with all the caveats that I absolutely hate making predictions into things that have so, so many factors, I like, if I were, if I were forced to gun to my head, I really believe we're gonna have an incredible Q4. Um, I think that the demand online is going to be remarkable. And I I think it's going to be really, really powerful. Um, I believe, you know, I'm hopeful that the election is going to end in a way that leaves the country in a more positive position with a definitive outcome. um, And we're going to get back to healing a little bit. And that in the spirit of that, there's going to be a a lot of people who want to find a reason to celebrate. 2020 has been freaking hard. 
Um, and that's not to discount the amount of people that are experiencing economic suffering. That's real. Um, but I really think that there's going to be a lot of people that are eager to find a reason to be joyful um, and that we're going to have an awesome Q4. At least that's what I'm hopeful for. Love it. Well, I, speaking of that, we're, we're only a few weeks away. So if you if you can in your state, you know, certainly get out and vote early. Uh, certainly vote when it comes around in a few weeks. Uh, Taylor, thanks so much for the time, man. Really enjoyed it. I think a lot of really awesome value in there uh, for the listeners and uh, looking forward to chatting more soon. All right, guys. I appreciate the time. Thanks, Taylor. It's news time. First things first, let's give a shout out to Taylor Holiday of Common Thread Collective, our fantastic guest for this episode of Good Company. So Common Thread Collective is an e-commerce growth agency. So uh, they are built, that's the reason they exist, is to help entrepreneurs and brands uh, achieve their their growth dreams. Um, it's been sort of their, their mission statement from day one and years down the line, they're working with a wide variety of older and newer brands to uh, take them to the next level. One of their main offerings is helping scale the brands from, you know, beyond that $2 million to $30 million annual revenue threshold. That's where often brands can get plateaued. Um, they have some awesome formulas that, that have been touched on in, in the podcast. And uh, yeah, they put an emphasis on strategy. Their approach is thoughtful. It's tactical. It's curated to each and every brand that they uh, that they meet regardless of their stage in the journey. And they specialize on those D2C businesses. So Common Thread Collective, check them out. Moving along. We've got an interesting IPO that just uh, went down in the e-commerce space. D2C hearing aid company Ergo, um, has, uh, they raised $100 million to a recently IPO. They make medical grade hearing aids that are nearly invisible. They're rechargeable. They sit completely within the ear canal. They've sold over 42,000 units Often you could say like the medical e-commerce space doesn't get enough love and, and news and, and traction and greater media. So it's awesome to see a, a company, especially this mission statement, be rewarded for their journey here and bringing um, very needed product to the market. Here go. Different type of fundraising here. So a company called Perch, they acquire D2C businesses and products that are already selling on Amazon. So I already have some traction there. And they take them over and then operate and grow those operations. So they just raised $124 million to continue this business model. Mainly this capital is to keep acquiring these businesses, as well as build out their team and further invest in this Amazon growth platform. So moving to the next fundraising, a lot of fundraising going on. Lark, L-A-R-Q, Lark. They're a leading health and wellness hydration brand. This week, they announced a round closure of a Series A. It's $10 million. So they're going to use uh, that capital to uh, continue its global expansion throughout throughout next year and continue to develop this concept, which is a 360-degree hydration brand. So ultimately, they're providing access to clean water globally through sustainable products, uh, ultimately lower dependency on single-use plastic. Have to love that. Finally, we have the Art of Sport, uh, which is a body care line for athletes. Uh, they have raised $6 million in their, in their new funding round. As a athlete myself, um, really like uh, the art of sports branding and approach here. Think of it as a, a less cheesy, more direct niche, Old Spice. Yeah, so tackling that whole segment of the almost like unlimited supply of people out there breaking a sweat. Art of sport. So good finding there. That's it for the news this time around. would like for everyone to remember... It is better to travel well than to arrive. So on that note, see you next time on Good Company.